Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 77, Transhumanism and the Authentic Self. Professor James Hughes, bioethicist, transhumanist, and longtime Buddhist practitioner, joins us to discuss the radical implications that developments in technology may have both on our lives and on our meditation practices. This is part one of a two-part series. Hello, Buddhist geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm here today with a very special guest, Professor James Hughes. He's a sociologist and bioethicist. He teaches at Trinity College, and he's also the executive director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Is that an uh, organization that you helped found, James, or is that something that you joined later on? No, I founded it uh, in 2004, and I'm the executive director. Okay, great. And you're also an author, so you must be really busy here, <laughs> I'm getting a sense, of Citizen Cyborg, Why Democratic Societies Must Respond to the Redesigned Human of the Future, which is something we'll get into, and it's something that's probably deeply connected to the IEET uh, organization, which we just mentioned. And you're also working on an upcoming book called Cyborg Buddha, which kind of brings together these two passions of transhumanism on the one hand and ethics, and also your uh, strong background in the Buddhist tradition as a Buddhist practitioner since you were 17. And you'd mentioned you started in the Karmakagyu tradition and you'd also spent time as a, a monastic in Sri Lanka. And it sounds like you've been doing a lot of practice over the years. So if there's anything else related to your uh, Buddhist background that you wanted to mention, I'm sure the listeners would love to hear about it. Well, I, I've covered most of the bases that we think of in, in the Western meditation tradition at any rate. I also lived in Japan and studied Zen in Japan. Okay. So... I've had a dabbling in the Tantric, the Zen, and the um, Vipassana tradition. So you're hitting all the major bases here, it sounds like. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so on the one hand is the Buddhist background and practice, and the other hand is this, something that often you don't see the two together, at least I haven't, and that's a transhumanist and information technology and ethics and, and this really interesting, rich uh, background you have. And I'm wondering if you could Tell us a little bit about what the transhumanist philosophy is and how, how could you describe it in simple terms for people? Well, the essential insight of transhumanism goes back at least 400 years to the origins of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. The notion is that human beings can use science, reason, technology to improve the human condition, and that in the social sphere leads to utopian expectations, various kinds of projects for social reform, and the idea of social progress. And when it comes becomes applied to the body and to the brain and human experience, there are various kinds of um, uh, medical applications and uh, psychology, psychiatry, all these fields are kind of outgrowths of the Enlightenment project. But then the more utopian aspects of those, the more utopian, bio-utopian ideas are ways that we could, for instance, live a lot longer than we currently do, uh, control our emotions, uh, be smarter than we currently are. So it's um, the transhumanist idea is that we can use science and technology to overcome the limitations of the human body and brain and become something that some people might consider not human, beyond human or post-human. Mm. And 
could you give us a sense of what that might look like? Are you talking like adding an extra 20, 30 years to the lifespan, or is this more radical than that? Um, that would be a good start. <laughs> but we're, yeah, we're talking about um, potentially unlimited life expectancy. That unlimited, you know, there will still be accidents and murder and suicide, but uh, hopefully we will, in the coming century, conquer the major forms of disease and slow down the process of aging so that it becomes negligible. So, yeah, that's the most promising and, the, and probably the least controversial of the ideas out there uh, to uh, basically stop aging and, and make death a more voluntary matter. But then there, there are ways of radically expanding cognition, memory, uh, control of mood, um, aesthetically modifying the body, you know, growing wings and gills and um, then eventually uploading and downloading consciousness and controlling the brain through nanotechnology. Those are also on the agenda. Okay, so nanotechnology. You mentioned nanotechnology, and I've also heard um, Aubrey de Grey talk about biotechnology and ways of um, radically extending life expectancy using you know, genetics and things like that. So, so it sounds like there are at least a couple different ways in which different scientists and thinkers are going at this whole thing. Right. The the intersection of bio and nanotechnology, what we sometimes call the molecular sciences, because I, I don't think that those divisions will last much longer. We're, mm. They're beginning to converge. But our ability to control matter at the molecular level and put t intelligence into matter at the molecular level through tiny machines, that's going to enable a lot of these kinds of prospects. That's amazing. Yeah, I'd, I'd a couple of years ago, I read Ray Kurzweil's work, uh, The Singularity is Near, and uh, Fantastic Voyage, how, how to Live Long Enough to Live Forever. And I was really struck by, by his thinking and, and some of the transhumanist thoughts. And I really started to see that there's going to be an interesting uh, connection here in the future if, if some of these things come to be with regards to Buddhist practice. And uh, you'd suggested checking out one of your articles called The Elusiveness of Immortality, and uh, while I was reading that, and you tackled this exact intersection, and you wrote that the longer our lives, the more we'll have a chance to realize that there's no self living them. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that and how the achievements of radical life extension or uh, what you mentioned before, improving cognition or changing you know, the aesthetics of the body or, or sometimes what they call human body 2.0, how will this all contribute to a greater opportunity to realize no self and what the Buddha was teaching? Well, Western philosophy and bioethics have long been troubled by the impacts of uh, a lot of different kinds of uh, changes on the body and the brain and how they will uh, change people's sense of authenticity and the, uh, the integration of their selfhood. Mm. Um, and the that's because Western philosophy is centered on this notion that there is an authentic, interior, continuous self. There are some Western philosophers who have it, who have denied that, like Hume and um, and Parfit. But for the most part, there there's an unquestioned assumption that there is such a thing as an authentic self inside, and that if you do something like you know plastic surgery or you take Ritalin or Prozac, that you may be screwing around with your authentic self. Mm. I think for Buddhists, we don't have that problem because we um, generally understand that 
this selfhood is a construction. It's a, it's a psychological myth that we need to tell ourselves and that we use to uh, structure our lives, but that when you get right down to it, it doesn't have any substance to it. It doesn't really exist. And what happens when you begin to think about 1,000-year, 2,000-year life expectancies or the radical kinds of nanotechnological interventions in the brain that we're going to be capable of, you begin to see that, that, that this will begin to deconstruct for people this notion of the authentic self. So, for instance, if I were able to go into my brain and suppress certain unpleasant memories, um, or if I was able to copy my memories and give them to somebody else so that they could remember them just with the same fidelity that I remember them. Mm-hmm. If I was able to, uh, if I was, say, a transgendered person, I go to the doctor and I say, I feel like I'm a man inside a woman's body. And that doctor then might have at some point a pill they, they could give me and say, well, you could either change your body or you could change your brain. So you could you could be a um, a woman inside a woman's body instead of a man inside a woman's body or whatever. The this is very troubling for the many Western folks because of this notion of authenticity. Well, are you really a woman inside that body? Are you really a man? You know, what are you really? Um, for us, I think the general position would be that that's not the right question. The right question is what is the path that's going to you know lead to the greatest happiness and cessation of suffering? Mm. And if it means changing your brain, fine. If it means changing your body, fine. But um, what it gets at is that people won't be thinking about it in terms of authenticity. That whole notion of, of continuous, discrete, autonomous selves will begin to blur. Interesting. So they'll begin to blur because the technology will create more of an opportunity, it sounds like, to share things in ways interpersonally even that that just aren't possible now like you're mentioning sharing memories and uh, potentially sharing emotional states i suspect or even thoughts Um, well that's that's a little bit further in the future i think that will certainly begin to push these boundaries but you know for instance even right now if you go into a hospital and form an advanced directive you write an advanced directive and you say if i'm ever you know permanently gorked out by one condition or another I don't want to have X, you know, I don't want to have antibiotics. And then you get to that situation and you find that actually you still have a quality of life and you don't want, you know, you don't agree with your previous self. Mm-hmm. This is very troubling for hospitals, lawyers, clinicians. Which one's the real one? Is it the person who signed the advanced directive in the first place or is it the person who's in front of you who has a diminished cognitive capacity because of their disease? but um, seems to still enjoy their strawberry ice cream. Um, so which one do we obey? And, you know, again, we still need to come to an answer about that, which one we, we obey. But it's not an answer that says one is the authentic self and the other is not the authentic self. So we're already facing this kind of situation, but these neurotechnologies will uh, push it, will make it clear to us that there is no real self inside of us as as we're able to introspect as well as we're able to use them to look at the way that the mind works in addition to our meditational methods these other kind of methods we'll see that there's no place where there's a real self and there's no real self to defend great and so it sounds like also having extended lifespans which we already have comparative you know comparatively speaking to the last 100 200 years sounds like there'll be more opportunity to do that that kind of introspection as well Well, if you think about the relationship between your five-year-old self and your 60-year-old self, uh, you may remember that five-year-old self 
but again, from our perspective, the Buddhist perspective, the notion that you are the same person as that five-year-old self is really not a great question to ask. Mm. It's, not, it's not the right way to look at it. Mm-hmm. And even more so, if you were to you know, say, um, genetically modify your body and your brain or to back up your, your consciousness into an android or whatever's coming down the pike, whatever kinds of changes will enable those thousand-year, two-thousand-year lifespans, those changes will be so radical in our experience and in our, um, the way that we are instantiated as consciousness, that there will be huge, even bigger discontinuities between our current, you know, twenty-year-old selves and whatever that two-thousand-year-old self is going to be. Right. And so then again, that question of of authentic continuity between those two will, will really blur. I think the the thing that pushes it the most, as you mentioned, is when we get to the point of uploading and downloading memory and experience. Because then you can really begin to uh, imagine the kind of profound sharing of innermost experience with other people in ways that would uh, really, really fundamentally challenge the notions of separate autonomous selves. Right, right. And I think you'd, you'd um, blogged about one of the interviews we did a couple months back with Daniel Rizzuto, who's a, a neuroscientist in the uh, Northwest. And he was, we were talking about the possibility from his perspective of their of it being feasible to create what's called the enlightenment machine, or you could even think about like a program that you just run that kind of could make some structural changes in the brain that subjective corresponding experience would be of, you know, radical no self understanding. So that seems like another interesting possibility. I wonder what you think about that. Well, people are already working on that. Um, I I interviewed uh, James Austin, who wrote Zen in the Brain uh, about five or six years ago. Mm. And I asked him this question, well, you know, given all the parts of the brain that you've implicated in uh, Satori and and other Zen-related meditational experiences, don't you think that we'll be able to stick an electrode in there or take a pill and accomplish some of these things? And he was horrified at the prospect, I have to say. Really? Although he was a neurologist, is a neurologist, and had been um, you know, working on neurotherapies for many years, as well as being a Zen practitioner, he, I think many Buddhists find this a troubling prospect that we might be able to accomplish some of these things through technology. But one of, one of the kinds of technology that's being experimented with is transcranial magnetic stimulation, which temporarily turns off um, small sections of the brain with m- magnetic uh, waves. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's been accomplished with that is to create the same kind of sense of oneness or out of bodilessness or bo- you know, bodilessness that sometimes occurs as a makyo during meditation, as a, as, a, as a side effect of meditation, mm-hmm. by hitting the proprioception part of the brain. So the proprioception is what regulates the sense that you are inside of your body, that you are continuous with the dimensions of your body. When you knock that out, uh, you you can release that sensation or at least have a temporary sensation of oneness. Now that, as we know, is not the be-all and end-all of, you know, of a meditation experience. That's not why you really sit. But it can it can give you some of that spacious sensibility that allows you then to uh, be a little bit more motivated in your practice, I think. So we can imagine, I think, these kinds of not only neurofeedback devices that could help with meditation, but also direct brain stimulation of various kinds and, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, various kinds of psychopharmaceuticals that could facilitate and complement a meditation practice. 
Interesting, really interesting. And I'm, I'm just imagining now that some of our listeners are, are kind of having this gut response or gut reaction to what you're saying. And, and I'm sure you've come across this before, where, oh, yeah. where people uh, you know, tend to see technology or the increase of technology as, as leading us further away from the things you're talking about of, of no self and, and some sort of bias against uh, rapid and sometimes unforeseeably crazy change. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit maybe to, to ease their suffering, or maybe, maybe you don't want to. So you could <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they, all these technologies have to be used with wisdom. And so let's just talk about caffeine. In Zen practice, you know, the, the story that uh, Rin, uh, is it Rinzai, uh, Dar- no, Bodhidharma, tore off his eyelids, threw him outside of his cave so that he could stay awake and that the eyelids turned into the first green, leafy, green tea plants. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously not true, but the notion is that for a long time, at least in Chinese, Korean, Japanese uh, meditation practice, there's been an acceptance that caffeine can be an, a, a supplement to those practices, that it's not an intoxicant. It's, an, in fact, a complement to your meditation practice. Well, if that's the case, if it's the case that we could use a naturally occurring stimulant that doesn't have bad, many bad consequences to help us stay awake during meditation, then what other kinds of drugs might there be that would complement and uh, aid meditation practice? Well, just as with caffeine, all of those drugs are probably going to come with some side effects as well. You know, if you drink too much green tea, if you drink too much black tea, you're going to have a racing heart, uh, you know, labored breathing, racing thoughts. It's not going to help your meditation practice. So it has to be in moderation. And that's going to be true with all the drugs that we're going to talk about and all the technologies. They can be used to distract, um, to, to become further addicted to consumer lifestyles of various sites, various qu- kinds. Mm-hmm. And uh, or they can be used to keep us on track. Um, so I, I I think that all of these technologies have risks, but they also have these benefits. And I think very few of us have looked at the benefit side. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, Abbot of the Village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and Pragmatic Dharma Provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.